Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joining today, he's an ex-White House, former special ops, author, and speaker. It's Atlas Altman. How are you doing today, Atlas? Hey, Alex, man. I'm great. Good to see you. I love this show. Love it. Love it. Love it. We are so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we'd like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? Yeah, uh, well, unlike all of your guests, I actually have a weird answer. <laughs> I usually say I'm from America because I grew up in the Army. My dad was in the in the Army. He, he grew up uh, in the Army as well, uh, moving around. So we have like a family history of nomadic behavior. Uh, so I was born in New Mexico. We moved to Ohio, Texas, California, Massachusetts, and then I just continued the pattern. And now I live in Phoenix. Um, the uh, the start to this whole journey, uh, like reality, like where I'm from right now is Phoenix. So that's what I'm saying <laughs> as the easy answer. But yeah, I'm more complex than than a lot of the people that are like uh, Toronto. <laughs> Out of all those places, is there one that is specifically memorable from a growing up standpoint? So before the high school age, is there any place that's big monumental for you? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Ohio, Uh, I grew up uh, a lot in Ohio. Um, I've been pretty much a bolt on to uh, families uh, around the uh, five year point of my life. I got adopted and I got my last name. And we moved to Ohio and uh, then my dad went back in the army and we came back to Ohio. And then now my dad lives in Ohio still. Uh, so that's where he calls home, but I'll, I'll never live in Ohio. No offense to Ohioans. <laughs> I just, you know, I just not, it's not for me. <laughs> that the Midwest and you're more, well, I mean, Phoenix is, you go from the heat. I mean, Midwest, you never know what the weather is going to be out in this area. That's right. If you don't like it. It'll change in five minutes. It's okay. <laughs> Growing up, did you have any interest in anything? Was it a certain activity, a certain like kind of game? I mean, something that you enjoyed doing? Yeah. So always wanted to be in the military. Always. Uh, from the smallest age, my my grandfather was a special oper- operator. He was a Green Beret um, before uh, uh, Vietnam um, movies were made about some of the things that he did. Uh, he was very hush-hush on on all the things that he did. But I always looked at him and I thought, that's a man, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want to be a man one day. And so he taught me very early how to march. My first words were up, two, three, four, because he marched me around the house in his boots. And I always wanted to be like him. And then my dad, when he adopted me, he was also in the special forces community. And I, I just wanted to be in the military, in special forces somewhere. And uh, that's what I always wanted. And, and and I made my mom really mad. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you about that. I made her really mad uh, when I made my choice of what I was going to do with my life. And uh, yeah, I kind of followed suit with what I wanted to do. Just like a lot of your, your, your stories, the stories that they have on this, or that you have on this podcast, they, they are just, so relatable to a lot of us because so many people, they, they want something and then they go after it and then they just don't stop until they get it. Yep. And a lot of your stories are just right on point with that, that whole theme. Like if you just continue working at it, you're going to get there. And it's amazing when it happens, isn't it? It's just something that's, uh, it's just so great about the show. So um, yeah, I, I, I joined the military, obviously, as you read in my bio, and went to the special forces community. So that was great, but I did it non-standard. My army, 
uh, dad, my army grandpa, my Navy grandpa, uh, they, uh, they kind of all balked when I joined the air force. (laughs) 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 It was like, huh? I don't know about that. That's not special forces, but yeah. Yeah. Ended up working with all of them in the air force. Uh, so I worked with green berets and Rangers and, um, special forces across the board, uh, from seals to, you know, the, the air force has some really, really elite special forces teams. And I got to work with them as well. So those are the true professionals that no one knows about. <laughs> well, at this rate, you're hitting every branch almost. We still got a couple more to go in yeah. the family. So you're, yeah, just, yeah. you're like, ah, no one's hit that spot. But I love how you mentioned the talk about people going right after it. And a lot of times with people when they're growing up, they always have that dream and they're like, I'm going to do anything. And usually when you go every year, it's always, I want to still do this. I still want to do that until they really get older. Then sometimes it changes. You talked about your mom didn't like that decision. What was the biggest concern that she had? And did that ever play an effect for you to Maybe I want to go in a different route, but you were inspired by your dad and grandfather and the route that they took. Absolutely. So I, I put all that on the TED stage. Um, my my mom wanted me to be in the army. I mean, she raised me to be in the army. She wanted me to be a ground pounder. I mean, she put me in my dad's footsteps and my grandpa's footsteps to go in the army. And she named me Joshua Michael. And when I was born... I was told that that stands for leader of warriors. And so whenever I joined the Air Force, she didn't see me as being a leader of warriors in the Air Force. She's like, are you going to go push papers? And uh, and I did. <laughs> I did it really well, too, because uh, back then we had papers and emails were, were new. But my dad, this is going to be an anti-Simon Sinek message, okay? Um, my My dad, he saw something in me. And my friends were like, because they're kids, they started with why, like Simon Sinek. Um, they tried to market to me, like, hey, why don't you become a Green Beret? Or why don't you go get a Ranger tab and go in the Army? Or why don't you just go be a SEAL? You're an athlete. And what I took away from my dad was, he's like, yeah, you are an athlete, but you're also a very intellectual person. And the job that the Air Force is offering you has more capabilities for you to be around the top brass. And you'll make more of an impact there for yourself and the family. So I recommend you go this route. And, you know, two years later, I changed the way the Air Force promotion system works. They still use it today. Uh, they, they used to announce everybody in numbers. And, and then people would like look through there and they would try to find their name. And I was like, why don't we, why don't we list this alphabetically? And they were like, yeah, we can do that. And then ever since then, they've been listing the promotion list by alphabets and people are like, yeah, I made it. It's just uh, it's a little easier for people. You know, it's people centric. But all back to like my dad saw me as a who instead of a why. And he's like, I know you. And my dad's my dad's an awesome leader because of those type of things. He taught me you should look at the person first, not the question of like confusion that everyone's been talking about for the last what 13 years since. Simon's start with why came out, which is a great marketing concept, by the way, because he uh, he basically he rephrases don't sell the drill, sell the hole, which is immensely popular in a marketing. Um, But he made it like, hey, you know, you got to focus on your why 
and people are like, what does that look like? And <laughs> like, and then like his whole TEDx stage broke and everybody was like, whoa, a TEDx stage broke? What is that? And they started Googling it and people were like, well, this guy's popular. I'm like, ah, ah, is he? <laughs> <laughs> but he had the most views for years of all the TED stages. So, and he's very popular. He's a great marketer. I would advise great marketer. Going into the Air Force, did you go yeah. straight out of when you were 18? Did you go earlier? And if you earlier. did go straight earlier, was there ever that education aspect, that backup plan, if something happened, yeah. injuries and things like that? Yeah, it's just all part of the rise, right? Whenever someone's looking to transition into their adult life, they have a lot of these questions that go through their head and they think they have to have it figured out. Oh, yeah. And I was no different. I was I was a little bit less hesitant to go to school because I didn't really like school. I wanted to do something physical and go see the world. Mm-hmm. And this kind of fit in my bucket of what I wanted to do anyways. And the Air Force, uh, unlike uh, a lot of the uh, the commercials, they are very heavy on education. Like education is one of the first things I got told I need to get into college. You know, my first supervisor was like, when are you going to go to college? I was like, I just got here. He's like, yeah. Okay. So tomorrow you're going to go sign up for college. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I did that. Um, but the, my backup plan was to go to college um, after, you know, seeing the world for, for mm-hmm. four years. And then, you know, almost three decades later, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I went from zero stripes, like nothing to one of the senior um, ranking ranks in the air force. So like, four ranks uh five ranks from the top and i was like hey guys i'm, I'm done thank you for this this has been great i gotta leave <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's what happened um and then during that time it was amazing you know i i got nothing but amazing stories uh and <laughs> yeah um some of them are very trying and uh, i'll share one that i've never shared before uh when i was at the at the white house I had transferred from my enlisted time. And, and what that means to your listeners who aren't familiar with the military is um, whenever you go into military, you have two options. You can enlist and you can get a job and they'll teach you what that job is. And then they'll, they'll give you a trade. All right. And then uh, the other option is you can go be a, an officer, which requires a four-year degree. And then you have to be accepted. And there's a senator or a congressman that has to approve you to go into that. And one of the other they're both great choices. You know, I, I absolutely, I loved both of my, my choices. So when I started here, I was very hands-on. I was a combatives instructor at, at night. I used to work at a bar. I was a bouncer. Um, I, I had a lot of fighting in my background and I was ready to fight. Uh, and then I transitioned into being an officer and I was not allowed to do that anymore. So when I was at the, uh, first mission that I had overseas for the White House, I was, I was wearing a diplomat pass. And on the diplomat pass, it said, you know, United States of America diplomat. And so I walked into the event that I was supposed to be at to ensure that the president could talk. And I had, of course, with me a phone that he could talk on. It was the president's phone that I had to carry. It was my job. And they were like, you can't bring that in there. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm bringing it in. And they're like, no, no, you're not. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm definitely bringing this phone in. And they're like, no. I was like, okay, I'm not going to fight you. <laughs> what What do you need from me 
to get my phone into. And they were like, well, we need a diplomatic note. So I called the State Department. They gave me a diplomatic note. Surprised by that, this angered these guys. And uh, they all wear a uniform that looks like uh, it's all black. And they're all very serious. So uh, they said, okay, come on with me. Come on in with me. And they led me into this room. And when I walked in the room, I looked around and there was nothing but people dressed in black around me. It was like straight out of the movies. Like I'm about to get jumped. Oh. So I put my hands up immediately. Because what I'm trained to do is be like, hey, I have nothing in my hands. And uh, the guy swung on me. And he came across just like you always see in the movies, the big old haymaker. It's coming around. And I saw it coming. I put my hands up, but he got me. He got me right in the ear. And I was like, you just hit a diplomat of the United States. And and I turned around and got out of there quick. I'm looking at this guy and I could take him. I could take him. You know, I was like, oh, oh if this was four years ago, buddy. Mm. But like, I've never had to deal with that. I've never had to deal with that situation ever. So I got out and uh, my boss at the time, the trip, the trip lead called me. I was like, I heard you got hit. I'm like, I did. And she was like, hey, let's talk about it. I'm like, I am not ready to talk about it. I've never had to deal with not fighting. You know, this is the first time I've not been able to aggressively challenge somebody that has aggressed me, you know. So um, she comes to me and she's like, you need to tell me right away. And I was like, it's not going to be pretty. So I got angry and then I started crying and then I went back to anger and then I was not feeling so good. And they're like, hey, you got to accept an apology from this guy. And I'm like, I don't even know how to be. Like, I'm all the emotions right now. <laughs> like, all of them. And so and they're like, okay. The the uh, uh, advisor comes over. He's like, you need to accept this apology. Just accept it, and then we'll leave. So the guy, he's like, hey, I'm sorry for hitting you. I'm a Christian. And I go, oh, well, I'm a Christian too. And I don't hit anybody. And But I accept your apology. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. And I go, again. I accept your apology, but I wouldn't hit me if I were you. And then I walked away. And the advisor was like, oh, my gosh, who trained you how to do that? And I'm like, I don't know. My emotions are just going crazy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that whole trip, we got just about anything we needed uh, because wow. I was the guy that took the punch for the team. <laughs> I've never told that story in public. It's not even in my book, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine the route that your life would have taken if you did swing back out now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've thought about that quite often Um, because as the military lead, I jumped in back into the team and then, you know, nothing gets hidden from these guys. They're like, I heard you were crying. I'm like, yeah, I was. <laughs> we go straight to the crying part. Yeah, like, <laughs> you're crying. <laughs> yeah. You didn't see any of the other things. You just heard <laughs> I was crying. And he was they were like, yeah. So then, you know, that came out. They're like, well, he's he's a crier. I'm like, well, I'll still kick your butt. So let's come on. Um, so we had a lot of that. But, like, there was a lot of that shifty testosterone where people were like, if I were you, I would hit the guy. I'm like, ah, I think you would have got your butt kicked. Honestly, I don't think you could have taken the punch. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've thought about that. And, and if I would have done that, I would not have gone back into special ops at all. I would have ended my career a lot earlier. I would not have the stories that I have to tell about being on the sideline because that was before they brought me into the White House as a staff officer. 
Like I was advancing the president, making sure that he was good to go whenever he got there. And then, you know, a year and a half, two years later, no, year and a year, year later, I was actually living in the White House as part of the staff that was required to be there with him in case, you know, he needed to talk to somebody, which was a crazy opportunity. So, yeah, they told us, don't hit anybody. And I was like, well, this is going to be easy. And they're like, we'll see. <laughs> you were tested. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't hit anybody and they were right. I shouldn't have been. Uh, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent sure that if I would have done that, I wouldn't have been fit for leadership because I couldn't follow directions that were very plain and easy to understand. So that would have been an easy choice for them to go ahead and get rid of me, take me out of the agency, take me out of that job, which was a highly selective job, take me out of the leadership positions that I was in, you know, and then boom, I wouldn't have been in charge of billions of dollars. I wouldn't have made millions and like, I just, it's crazy. Yes. But if you think about it, most people, whenever they're given the opportunity, they think in pride instead of what is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the right thing to do is not prideful normally. Like <laughs> I kicked so many people out of the bar because they were acting in pride and liquid courage, you know, kind of kicks them in. But as I advanced in my career and I got towards the higher ranks and the more elite people and the polished people, if you will, nobody fighting. Ain't nobody fighting there. <laughs> they fight like, like this, like it's very open. And uh, I much prefer that way <laughs> than the physical way I started. <laughs> well, you talked about the pride aspect and especially in the industry that you were in, it's like your reputation is on the line no yeah. matter what you do, because someone higher up can look at you and say, you're not good for this position or you're not a right fit for this kind of scenario that you're going to be going into. And if you couldn't handle that small of a situation, think about in the bigger picture, what would happen. And that's in any industry out there when you're starting from the bottom and getting to the top. One bad move or one small incident basically can stop you, hit you in a roadblock. And you're now having thinking, what do I do now? What's next for me? Yeah. Well, the other aspect to that is integrity. Like I could have been like, no, I wasn't crying, but I was totally open and honest with what happened because what if somebody else had to go through that, you know, and then they're trying to bottle in something. And my dad always used to tell me, Hey, it's, it's just easier to tell the truth. You don't have to remember what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I always took his advice. And like I said, it's, he's, he's been great in my life. Something that you mentioned working in the White House, what was the biggest thing that whole experience taught you about yourself? Did you learn something new that that experience is a once in a lifetime opportunity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I learned how to um, like really condense stress in a different format. So like every job that I had introduced me to a different type of stress. That one introduced me to a no fail stress. Like I was not allowed to fail. So because the president was talking to someone, I was the person that was making sure that that happened. And if he sounded like the president, looked like the president, good on me. But I've never had that kind of stress. The first time I put him on the phone, uh, they were were like, hey, this is where it's going to be. We're going to set you up in this room. Uh, We're going to test it out. 
And I brought him, or I brought everything into the room. And I looked at everything, tested it all. Couldn't sleep at all the night before. It was just a weird stress I've never had to deal with. Um, no one's going to die, but I potentially am not going to be able to do this for, you know, the, the leader of the free world. So what happens is um, the stress comes on me and I had to deliver. And I'm looking at this phone while I hear this booming voice. It was President Obama's the one I worked for. And I heard him coming off stage and I looked down at the phone and the phone was a digital phone. It just failed, just oh. failed. And I could feel my heart like fall down into my stomach. People always talk about like my heart fell. I felt that. And, <laughs> and it went down to my stomach and I took the phone and I slid it to the side and I brought out this other phone. I hit redial because I had already practiced in case it failed. And I put up to my phone and he walks in the room and everything went flawlessly. But like, because I trained so much and I knew what was going to happen in case something happened, I was able to perform and that reduced the stress for the rest of my duration at the white house. But that first one, it's always the hardest, right? That's what they say. That first yep. one's always the hardest. And that first one was the hardest for me. <laughs> it was my, my heart fell. It was that bad. With working at the White House, taking the professional side out, did you have a personal life? Were you able to be able to separate those or were you so focused on the professional, the job aspect? Yeah, I, I absolutely, uh, I had I had a lot of time to kind of spend with my kids. Um, so uh, when I was there, if I wasn't traveling with the president for the first two years, I was training and after my training, I could go and spend time with my kids. So I would have like a Tuesday, Wednesday or a uh, Wednesday, Thursday instead of a normal weekend like everyone else does. And that kind of bred a lot of different things in my uh, father-son relationships that I never thought would happen, like mm -hmm. helping with schoolwork or we're going to do something really quick that's really meaningful right now. Uh, so I had that personal aspect of being a father. And then at the time I was married, but... Um, yeah, that, that whole marriage was just, it was tough because I was always gone. And so I had a lot of personal time with my team. So when I was on the road and I was hanging out with my team, they would automatically revert to what can we do here? So I found things to do uh, in places that we went to that were amazing. Like when we were in Jerusalem, I took my evenings and I went and I walked the wall. And that was something I got to do on a personal level that I don't think a lot of people would ever get to do, especially now. Yeah. I mean, so like, I'm glad I got that time, but I usually try to find time for me inside of that. And that that's worked out really well. It's kind of hard looking back at to answer this question. Cause it's a, what if, was it worth the risk of the marriage to where you were in your career? Was there ever that moment that you were willing to sacrifice your job to be back home with your family full time in a capacity? Yeah. So a lot of people, when they find out you're in the military, they're trained to say, thank you for your service. And I hear that a lot. Thank you for your service. But what they should really rephrase it into is thank you for your sacrifice. I was gone three years out of that four associate White House full years I was either living at the White House living with the president on the road or advancing the president to make sure that he could do his job as the president of the United States so working for the office of the president was a huge stress for my family 
And one of the things I got asked in, in the interview was, Hey, can your family handle this? We have, you know, a 90% or whatever. I was high rate. It's probably 70 uh, divorce rate. Uh, can your marriage handle this? And I'm like, well, if it can't, then that tells me something, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to go right into this because a lot of people might need to hear this. If you have somebody in your life that doesn't support what you are supposed to do, what your mission is in life, what your purpose is, maybe you shouldn't be with that person. Yeah. And it's a hard thing for people to hear because they've been traditionalized into this, this thing where they're like, hey, marriage is, is, is sacred. It sure is. But people change. And if you don't change with the person or they don't change with you, you really need to assess the situation because they could be doing better. And so could you. And if they didn't work out in the situation where they, where you needed them, when are they going to work out? You know? Yeah. I even, especially nowadays where people have those goals and even I think people voice their opinions on those kind of situations and support and like what that person's goal is. It it might be the craziest goal. Someone wants to move to another country or they have this job that it's going to take a lot of time, but you really test in those relationships. If that other person is willing to go through that experience, because maybe they see that that person might be happier if they're in that goal that they want to hit or, Mm -hmm in that new spot. So I'm glad you mentioned yeah. it because a lot of people listening probably are going through that same thing that maybe a divorce happens because of that situation or they're in a relationship right now where their significant other is not being that support system and it's making it even worse for that relationship. That's so true. Okay, if you take life, that is so true. If you take life as an example and you use money as the success measure, billionaires will often say this, This one lesson that they learned that brought them up to another level is that they started looking at the people that they associated with. Mm -hmm. And then they changed those people if they weren't working out for them. And it's hard sometimes. Like you get involved in relationships that are amazing and then they fall apart. And whose fault is it, right? No one knows. But if they're not supporting you anymore, you really need to think about what's going on. Um, You really need to think about it because maybe this isn't the right place for you. At the end of your time with the special forces X or the white house experience, did you have that next chapter planned out? Did you know what you need to do or move towards? Yeah. So my career went from being enlisted to uh, being in flight command for combat communications to going to the white house and then coming out of that, going to war college and then going to command. And that's kind of the structure. Like they want you as an officer to go into command. So I did command twice, three, three times before I got out of that situation. And then I went back into the special operations world. And that was a whole different, that's a whole different ball of wax because everyone's high speed. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own agendas. They all have a leadership bone in them. And, you know, it's, it's a bunch of alphas that get together and make things happen. And if you put alphas into an alphabet, <laughs> it works. But some people don't like to be called the beta. So you have to figure out what they're good at and put them in those positions. And I'm no different. My career was like, this is the way I want to go. This is what I want to do next. And this is what I want to do next. And the pinnacle was out in Afghanistan. They made me a a director for special operations uh, about six months before we closed shop. 
And I was very excited to get that opportunity. So from there, I was like, hey, guys, there's no better job I could have than than being a director in combat for special operations. I, I, I don't I would like to retire. And they're like, retire. I'm like, I'd like to be done with my service, please. <laughs> they're like, can we give you another job? And I'm like, uh, depends. So they made me a, a deputy a commander, like a mayor of uh, Luke Air Force Base here in Phoenix, which is what brought me here. And uh, it's the largest fighter wing in the world. So it was awesome. It's awesome to see that. But yeah, up until the directorship, I had it kind of where I wanted to go. And then being the number one everywhere that I was, was great. Being the, you know, the number one officer at the White House while I was there was helpful. And then being the number one leader in special operations for the Air Force was helpful. So I kind of got to ask instead of being told what I wanted to do, which is fantastic. You had to use a couple words to describe your experience through it, to describe yourself. How would you describe yourself through that journey? Yeah, um, discipline. Discipline is always something that you're going to see in success. It's one of those things where you got to do what you want to do before you do the things that you, you know, I'm sorry, you got to do the things you have to do before you do the things you want to do. And now um, that switches whenever you do that discipline cycle, it switches and you can do the things you want to do before you do the things you have to. And uh, that whole cycle is not really realized until you go through something like this, a journey where you rise up and then, then what? <laughs> um, so discipline, um, integrity, always telling the truth. You know, it doesn't matter what uh, someone's bad turns into something good. Something I like to say is whatever you're really angry about right now, is going to turn into a story that you're going to laugh about later. So why get angry about it right now? A lot of times it's just something that you're going to get growth out of. So let it happen. And then embrace, embrace the pain. Life is painful. People try to tell you it's not fair and they're right. Uh, Life is extremely painful and it's the growth that comes after that pain that makes you a stronger, capable, more able person. And because of that, you know, now now I've got five best-selling books. The the latest one just went uh, number one on the 12th category in Amazon. And people can relate to these things that I've been able to struggle through without having their life in danger, without having to go through, you know, potential firings or the emotional roller coaster that I just told you guys about. <laughs> that was a fun time. As you just mentioned, five-time best-selling author, let's get right into it. What made you want to write? Was there a specific moment, an opportunity that's like, I want to become an author or I want to write and share my experiences, my stories to the world? Yeah, absolutely. So what most people see is a uniform and a rank and a structure to the military. What they don't see is the military is the world's largest organization that produces leaders. And what they do is Every six months to a year, there's a leadership training opportunity that's given to everyone at different stages in their career. So after being uh, five five times in a extremely hard leadership position that I could potentially get failed uh, or I could potentially get fired from and sorry, failed and fired from, I found myself in this mandatory fun event where they brought in a very well-known leadership company and the leadership company started off with things that we learned probably 10 years ago in the cycle of leadership training 
So they tried to create this, this executive level leadership uh, training program, but they failed. And so I did what I always do. I reached out to my buddies. And I'm like, hey, guys, are you guys seeing the same thing? Are your bosses doing this? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, how's it going? They're like, it sucks. It's terrible. Like we just sit through it. It's mandatory fun. I was like, well, let's try to make it better. And so we started developing coursework for people that would go to the next level because the way the career progression works in the Air Force, once you hit commander, they're like, great. Then another command and another command. But there's this gray space of what do you do whenever you're an executive level leader in the military? Because it doesn't directly translate to corporate world. So you can pick up a bunch of books. You can pick up a Simon Sinek book. It doesn't translate. He talks about two-star and three-star buddies of his. I have two and three-star buddies of mine that will tell different stories. So everybody's leadership journal journal is different and their journey is different as well. Mm -hmm. So whenever they have all of this put together, you have something that you can't just blatantly state, this is leadership training and it's going to help you. It's like, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It it doesn't really compute well. Um, no. So... <laughs> Um, somewhere, somewhere, somebody's going to tax you, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's just part of it. So, uh, what I did was I started taking all the best practices that I had had in my career. And I noticed someone above me who is now a, a two-star general was doing the same thing. And I compiled all of their data and I started feeding it out. And the, the, the community, was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I'm like, cool. And I'm like, if I take my best practices and all the other best practices that I've learned from higher level leaders and start to really funnel it down into something that could be read by not only the military, but business leaders that are in the same predicament, I might have something of use. So for about four years, I started taking books and major content and all of the thoughts that were coming in from all of these big thought leaders. And I started mixing them in with my best practices and lessons learned. And I created like a hundred page book. And uh, one of my buddies read it. He's like, I'm going to send this to my buddy at Harvard Business Review. And I said, oh, so they reached out and they're like, hey, we'd like to publish a book. And then Dave Goggins was like, <laughs> he put this out. Everyone can see this. He said, don't let anybody publish your book because they'll own you. And I'm like, hey, I need my book back. And they're like, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so I started uh, the self-publishing journey. And and my kid came in and he was like, Hey, I want to, I want to figure out how to make money. I'm like, write a book, dude. And so we started writing books. I wrote them and he edited them. And then, you know, we did that the first time the next day we're on the bestsellers list. And I was like, Whoa, what happened here? Apparently kids leadership books is uh, a need. So we did another one, another bestseller. And then we did another one. We got to number one and I was like, Holy crap, this is sick. And we put the process together and the fourth one broke Amazon. It, didn't have any books to sell after like day two. So we got stuck at two and no one could buy any books from Amazon for a month. I was Ooh. like, well, that sucks. So, um, and that, that book is, uh, is this one. I, I always try to keep an extra copy because they're still hard to get. <laughs> um, but I had a friend of mine from the white house actually call and she's working in New York at a, a big company. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name them. So I won't. And she's like, hey, how many books do you have on hand? I'm like, usually about 100. She's like, can you count? And I'm like, why? She's like, my company wants to buy all of them. I oh. was like, that's amazing. Sure. And so, you know, I just packaged up and sent out, used a whole day 
take everything that I had and push it out to New York. So um, uh, apparently there's, there's some use in these things, but I think a lot of people have stories in them. The latest poll said that 80% of Americans have a story that they think would be book worthy and that would help people. And then unfortunately only 1% of them actually go through and write the book. It's a process, but it's an easier process than most people would realize once you get into it. It's, it's cyclic. Uh, I have a nine step process that I'm going to give to your listeners for free. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I give you the link to that, but it's probably going to be my website slash rise to the challenge. And then, uh, they can go out there and get how to publish a best selling book for free. I usually charge for that, but I'll give that to your listeners. So if they're interested in writing a book and you want to write a book, do it. The world needs your message. And there's somebody like you that is struggling. And if you don't want to get on stage, like most people, the best way to do that is through a book because people remember how they felt when they're on a stage. Whenever you get off that stage, they don't remember what you said. But in a book, they can pick up that lesson and repeat, repeat, repeat until they get it right. And that's just an amazing magic trick that you can put in the world and a legacy that you can give to your family, too. So long answer. (laughs) with a book it's one of those mediums or content out there where people can share and you talked about different ways speakers and you see the rise with videos podcasts Mm. people sharing it and i think it's so important nowadays and it kind of goes with how our show my show is is a lot of people have that story some people are afraid to share it And some people are open to share it. And I always say, and I always think that the people that are afraid to share it should share it because there's Mm -hmm. always that listener out there that may be able to relate. It may not be like, I can't relate to your story because I've never been in the military, but there's things that you've gone through in the military that I might've been able to relate to in my world and what I have been doing. And I think that's so important and people can take those concepts and utilize it in their lives. So yes. I love when people share it because you never know what you're going to learn and you never know how that person might connect. When you have written your books, has there ever been that reaction that someone's read it and it's kind of built that connection where they're still wanting to learn even more from you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all the time. So uh, if you do write a book, have you written a book, Alex? I have not written a book yet. Yes. Yet. Yeah, yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so when you write a book, the biggest thing that an author loves to see is the reviews. Yep. And Amazon's the biggest, you know, worldwide seller of books. So most of the reviews end up on Amazon. So I love getting the reviews from Amazon. The one that just published said that, uh, amazing things, you know, about my book that it related immediately to what it, what uh, are the important things that a leader should focus on, which is people, time, and money. And that if you focus on people, a lot of times people just don't focus on people. They, they focus on time or money. Mm-hmm. But if you focus on people, then the time and money aspects, they immediately get less important. Uh, because if you find the right person, they're going to save you time and money. That's just how the, the magic works. And only a few people get to see that cycle the right way. So the light bulb came up in my last review where they were like, I've never thought about it like this, but it's so true. And I'm like, well, that's how we got selected to work at the White House. That's how people go to the White House. That's how we select our politicians. This is how special operations does it. We always pick the person. 
Mm-hmm. We, we don't pick a team. We pick a person to be on a team. And then the team becomes awesome because of the people we put on it. It's it's an amazing little journey that we all see, but I put it in my book. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, all of that said, um, if you have something like that and you think it's common sense, common sense is not common, nor is common decency or common courtesy. All those things are not common, but you can make them common by putting them in your book. And then what I do is I offer it with like stages that I'm on. Um, I, you know, I can't do it with the Ted, the Ted stage didn't get any books, but all the other big stages, they're like, yeah, can I have some books? I'm like, yeah, let's get some books to you. And then they can reference that too. And I put some things in there that are extremely useful. And my book is really small compared to a lot of business books. So it's like good weekend read. So whenever they read the book, then they can go out to my, my Instagram is where I'm the most, uh, most active or LinkedIn really. Um, one of those two. And they'll get continuations of what I'm working on. My next book, Start With Who? Yeah, it comes right off of my TED stage. That book is in progress right now. And I'm putting things out to see what resonates with people before I put it in the book. So I have things in there like failure and like feedback. No one cares about feedback. No one wants your feedback, man. And so many people, I think it was 18,000 people on Facebook clicked on that. And they were like, thumbs up. Nobody likes your feedback. But he does. So true. But things like that will end up in my book. And that's all part of the, the process that I do. I do the social proofing with social media. And then I put it in a book. And then I'll sit it on stage. And then the book will go home with somebody. You talked about speaking and being on stage. Is there one stage event that is that dream opportunity for you that you hope to see in the future for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was on a TEDx in uh, South Lake Tahoe and the way that works is if you're good at that in the first 24 hours, the algorithm looks at how many links, uh, link clicks you got and how many views you got on your link. And then it determines whether or not you're ready for that TED stage. So if you get a lot of people that are looking at your video, then you can go to the TED stage. So I did the TEDx stage. Everyone wants a TEDx stage. Every time I announced it, people were like, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. And it was, it was an awesome stage. Um, but the stage after that is the actual TED without the X. And then that hits millions instead of hundreds of thousands. You know, there's 39, 39.3 million, I believe, uh, subscribers to TEDx right now. So it's a big stage. And uh, it's it was an amazing opportunity that I got to to share my my life story and how I kind of grew up, kind of like what you're giving me the opportunity to do on your podcast. Um, but uh, that TED stage is probably the biggest one that, that I think is is possible now. Um, the other ones like the Fortune 500, the Fortune 5 companies, uh, my speakers bureau will 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 take care of that. Um, I'm in Professional Speakers Bureau International. Uh, they, they, they hire out, um, from fortune five, fortune 500 companies, uh, speakers like me to come in and talk about, you know, a whole host of things. I have motivation, personal transformation, leadership, obviously management, um, the whole gambit survival, I mean, whatever the, the theme is, I fit my speech into that. And what helps with that is writing, man. And starting with a kid's book is an amazing journey. Because if you can explain it to a kid, you can explain it to anyone. So I always tell people start there. And then you'll become a best-selling author if you use my nine steps, whatever. 
And then whenever you do your regular book, you can put like right on top, best-selling author. <laughs> Too That's easy. A, it's better than doctorate most of the time. <laughs> when you're not working, what does Atlas like to do for fun? Yeah. Oh, I love being in the mountains. We just uh, got back from the mountains this weekend. We went up and cut down a Christmas tree. I got a permit from the state of Arizona to do that this year. So we spent the weekend up there and we went hiking through the mountains. Let me tell you, like Christmas trees are no joke. Like when you go and you pick out <laughs> one from the Christmas tree place, you know, it's like, oh, that one's not perfectly round. I didn't see a perfectly round one on the mountain the whole time we were up there. But uh, it gives me a new appreciation. But I love being outdoors. I love being away from all of the things. Um, one of the biggest tips I got from the TED stage, uh, TED st- uh, speaker uh, that I met last year, um, Dr. Oz, he recommended getting out and walking every day. He said, you know, of all the people that have lived over 100 years old, they had three things in common. One, they spent time in nature every day. Mm-hmm. Two, they had plants that they took care of. And three, they really watched what they ate. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Done. <laughs> so I like to do that. Um, I work out, like if you can call that a hobby, uh, every day. Uh, I try to, you know, keep myself fit. Uh, that's fun for me because being being the person that uh, that everyone underestimates is is underestimated. Nope. it's it's always funny whenever i take my hoodie off or whenever someone sees like one of my previous bodybuilding because i was a bodybuilding champion they'll see that sometimes and be like you are you this guy i'm like yeah and they're like you don't look i don't wear clothes for me to look like that why would i (laughs) (laughs) so you know um i like to be underestimated and that's the that's the best way to over deliver I agree. I always called myself the wild card because you never know, especially with sports, you never know when I'm on that field, what's going to happen. And usually when you're younger, it's the, the schoolyard pick. So it's, you don't want to be the last person. I'm like, you can pick me last. You're just going to regret it after you see what I'm going to do. But I love that underestimating because I think you have more power to prove to not just people but to yourself what you're able to do and that has been even part of my story is I always doubted myself but I now have been in the mentality of I'm going to try to show people what I can do and Mm. not underestimate my abilities to go conquer an obstacle course go for a run go for a hike those kind of things that challenges myself and I love doing that every day you mentioned nature I'm like you're like talking about walking the mountains. I would yep. want to just be by the ocean. I went to yeah. California for a trip and I'm like, can I just be at this walking this path on this side of the beach forever? Like, I think that just got me so relaxed. And then you mentioned yeah. the, plant, the plant eating healthy and being in nature. Let's take the plant idea out because I probably <laughs> not keep a plant alive. I'd probably need the fake plants in my it's cave, tough. but I can do the other too easily. Yeah. It's tough, but it, I mean, it works out. It's uh, it's the same thing with a pet, right? You know, if you have something to take care of, it, it makes you actively think about it. I think, oh, yeah. uh, I think you could substitute it with a pet. Do you have dogs or cats? I have a dog. She, okay. She's upstairs right now sleeping, but I would do anything for her. If yeah. she, she needed something, I'd, okay, I'm in. 
And I work from home, so she's like always next to me. And it's like, it's kind of like the best thing that's happened. Because right. I, it's amazing. I grew up with dogs and living in my own house. It's like, that was my goal was to have my own dog. And she's now passed out of sleep upstairs, like always. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome because whenever you come home, you're probably super excited to see that dog. I, mean, I know the dog's super excited um, to see you. When I was on a trip, I was like, can I go get my dog from like the pet hotel? Like, is it time yet? Can I go? Like, I'm right. safely driving my car, but sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't tell my mom that. Should <laughs> he was not. <laughs> the final question I'll ask you for someone that's right. listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? I love that. You ask the same question always the same way. I love the way you <laughs> um, Yeah. So listen, you have greatness inside of you. Everyone does. Finding that greatness is hard, but once you find it, you know, and you cannot stop until that greatness is exposed to the world. Trust me, there's going to be obstacles you have to overcome, and that'll make you stronger and more capable to do exactly what you are called to do in this life, and that's be great. Atlas, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate all of this. This is amazing. Thanks for having me on the show. Tune in next time. Hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.